is a classical liberal. It sounds like someone who's a liberal, but perhaps a bit fancier. People like to get sneaky and use, no, I'm a classic liberal. It's oh, what is that? What is that? Exactly. You're a fucking Republican. The classical liberal tradition was born from great thinkers such as John Locke, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, and Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. No, I'm a classic liberal. The core belief that the individual should always be considered above the group always remain constant. Individual. No, I'm a classic liberal. There's already a little classical liberal in you right now. Welcome to the One Dime Podcast. I'm the host and YouTuber One Dime, and I run the One Dime channel and the One Dime Podcast. Today I am here with my friend Melody, also known as A World to Win. You can find her Twitter in the description as well as her YouTube channel. She is a scholar, a socialist organizer, and major book reader. And today we will be talking about liberalism, particularly liberalism from a critical lens. Not just the liberal ideals, but the economic origins and context of liberalism. We're going to be going over particularly findings from Domenico Lozordo's book called Liberalism, A Counter-History. Before we get deep into it, how would you like to introduce yourself and what exactly you do and maybe plug your channel? Uh, yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Melody, a uh, 28-year-old uh, trans woman from the Pacific Northwest, uh, graduate student of economics, and uh, I have a YouTube channel called A World to Win, where I talk about um, mostly history and politics um, through sort of a, a, a Marxist lens. Um, and uh, my background is in the natural sciences. Uh, I have a degree in physics. Uh, yeah, that, that's me. What got you into revolutionary communist organizing and theory, per se? Well, um, that can, I can make a whole podcast episode about that, but I'll, I'll just give you the, 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 yeah, cliff, just notes, the, the cliff, cliff notes version is... Um, you know, I was, I think, in high school when the big uh, recession happened back in uh, 2007, 2008. I just started high school. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was <laughs> well aware of the fact that there was, you know, poverty in the world. That, that didn't escape me. But what really, it didn't hit me just the kind of the extent of the cruelty of the system until you know, I suddenly I had friends that were either homeless or about to become homeless, or suddenly couldn't afford to um, you know put as much food or food at all on their tables, and you know all kinds of other problems that um, accompany economic distress. You know, parents developing uh, drug or alcohol problems, that sort of thing. So it became suddenly kind of very real to me, and I think the first uh, real political action I ever took part in was Occupy Wall Street in 2011. So I was, I think, about 18 years old. After Occupy uh, kind of fizzled out, I I had kind of, I had radicalized in definitely sort of what I would call very loosely an anarchist direction. Um, mm -hmm. Wasn't well-read on theory. I just like, I liked blocking up with people and doing that stuff. So I called myself an anarchist. Um, like as I was not deep in it, I was not deep in with a community or anything like that, but it was. Seems uh, to be well, a common story with a lot of. People. It was what I was a part of for, <laughs> you know, I'd say two or three years. And then I sort of kind of retreated from, from politics and finished my degree. And uh, it's kind of through the un university that, you know, I, was, I also have a degree in economics. So I, 
uh, was sort of introduced to Marx and, and Lenin through um, uh, through the academy in that way, but also through um, sort of campus organizing. What? You learn Marx and Lenin in university? Yeah, a little bit. I'm not hu- not huge amounts, but like enough to kind of whet my appetite and like get me to read it on my own. I had in my political theory class, uh, history of political thought. That was the only class we ever they ever mentioned Marx, and we had three months on John Locke, Rousseau, and Thomas Hobbes in one week, like one lesson yeah. on on uh, well, Marx, and it was the Communist <laughs> Manifesto. Our uh, <laughs> our economics department was lucky enough to be blessed with a handful of very talented uh, heterodox econ- economists, including. Uh, one guy who uh, is actually my neighbor and has been on my YouTube channel before, uh, Yusuf Kodavaras. Uh, he he taught um, he taught me Marxist political economy in my uh, junior year of of undergrad, um, and it was a whole a whole um, you know a junior level econ course devoted to reading Capital cover to cover, and it was a hell of a ride. I mean. I think a lot of people who are on the more broadly speaking, the socialist slash communist left, um, there's this sense that people often come from a liberal background or sometimes a libertarian background, you know, like I'm, I'm economically fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. Right. You know, Uh, but uh, anybody actually can say what that means. If (laughs) if you put the question to them, does that mean like gays are are all right, but let's cut welfare for the poor, you know, like, most people yeah. wouldn't say that. I mean, maybe they would, but like, if you actually like put, to ask them to put pen to paper and tell, tell you what their ideas are, I don't think they would be able to answer you. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of people come from a background that's more broadly a little bit liberal. And there's this perception that the li- liberalism generally is either center or left of center. Right. Or that or it just right, right of or that it just is the left because that's the poli- or yeah the far left right, because like, that's you know, the some, political some people think Kamala is a, right a Kamala communist, is a communist right well Hillary Clinton's a communist if you ask any any uh, right winger um, so uh, but you know because of the kind of binaristic political framework that we're all introduced to through the media through uh, the ideological state apparatuses right through the media through the school system right right there's two there's two ideologies there's liberalism and conservatism the way that it's taught is that there are two different ideologies liberalism and conservatism this one's left this one's right those are your choices yeah i mean that seems like the, that's a lot of the way like people growing up in western liberal democracies are taught things and um what, what's funny is when digging into like the history of liberalism we can kind of see that Pretty much most of the mainstream ideologies and political choices that we have more or less resemble liberalism. It's just that the term liberalism is used very broadly. And of course, there's some distinctions. And this is where I kind of want to go to define liberalism a bit, because the definition is very amorphous. It's, it's generally when it comes, it prioritizes free markets, economic liberalization, free trade, but also it prioritizes equality. Um, moral equality, not equality of outcome, but, you know, equality. Equality before the law. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, basically, which is obviously a very vague notion, uh, as well as liberty. Liberty is the you know, famous uh, thing that people attribute to liberalism. And um, we'll go into defining that, but it's, you know, there's like a, it's kind of blows conservatives and libertarians' minds that like actually Republicans, Democrats, 
libertarians and you know Bernie Sanders, social democrats are actually just variations of liberalism, but on different ways. You can say that obviously that like Republicans aren't socially liberal, but they're economically liberal. Like it's not um, all very different from Democrats. And even well, the case can, of Bernie Sanders, yeah. right, is still he's still maintaining like a liberal capitalist order, just with you know that's friendlier, right? In terms well, of I mean, you could state, go as far as saying that the you know the Democrats and Bernie Sanders and that whole spectrum are not even socially liberal because they keep making um, you know concessions to the Republicans on on everything. Yeah, well, I, I would definitely say that with the Democrats, by and large, because the Democrats will pay lip service, right, to these social issues, but they won't actually do anything. Right. They'll they'll pose for selfies during the campaign season, but then actually, when they're in office, they end up just m- making you know. And I think it was anyway. It was until like 2013 when uh, Hillary Clinton finally supported gay marriage, right? Right, and there's like still fairly recently. Yeah, and there's still Democrats uh, right now who don't support full like abortion rights or um, anything like or the or trans rights that kind of thing. Trans, you know. But yeah, generally speaking, the term liberalism has shifted a lot over time, and there's distinctions to be made between classical liberalism. You know, you'll famously hear that from some co- very conservative leaning people like uh, Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson. And you have embedded liberalism, which I would say is more or less what we think of as liberalism today, you know, big government, uh, pro-social progress, uh, and the neoliberalism, the, the famous thing. How would you define or differentiate these terms? Because obviously these things aren't the same thing, despite all being under the umbrella of liberalism. Well, right. So they have obviously a common uh, you know, intellectual lineage and uh, a few, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily consistent but persistent features throughout their history that haven't changed a whole lot um such as um you know the sanctity of uh private property rights uh the notion of equality uh before the law uh, at least ostensible equality before the law um and um sort of um yeah just a, a general general kind of uh uncritical um, view of, of of capitalism uh, as a socioeconomic uh, system. Yeah, um, like those I are think... all com- those are all features that I think are common to both all to all of what we now call classical liberalism, um, embedded liberalism, and neoliberalism. I that's, think that's... probably the, the the maybe the the only caveat that I'll give to that is that embedded li- liberalism free markets. Eh, I think the only uh, kind of minor exception there is embedded liberalism in that embedded liberalism was clearly sort of uh, certain aspects of it were clearly a kind of concession to social democratic stirrings um, in the, in the, in the mid 20th century in the Western world. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, you know, uh, so, so so-called embedded liberalism uh, is maybe uh, the, the one that is, the most, at least on the surface, critical of capitalism as such. Um, but sorry, you were saying. Well, I would say the thing that, yeah, embedded liberalism, which is more or less what we know to be social democracy, uh, we, we use that. But um, that, I also like to use embedded liberalism is actually, I think you would agree, is it's, lo- it's really looking out for the long-term interests of capital and markets. 
Yes. Because it, yeah. what a, it, it's not like an so much an exception to liberalism. It's just like a desperation of liberalism to save itself. Kind of like the way fascism right. basically it's, is. Uh, yeah, like fascism obviously is, you know, it does, it does away with due process and it does away with um, the separation or like the ostensible separations between the state and capital and it just kind of takes it over. But right. that's like also another reaction to save capital, like as we see with Weimar Germany. Yeah. Right. So the, the way that I try, I, I generally frame it is that um, s- social democracy and fascism are sort of uh, capitals to uh, um, safety, safety buttons in, in case of uh, social unrest press here. Um, so, uh, you know, social democracy is, is capital going uh oh, we've got torches and pitchforks at the door. We better throw out some some loaves and fishes. Uh, fascism is saying fascism is the alternative of the torches and pitchforks are at the door. Let's just steamroll them. Basically, uh, so they're yeah. two. They're the 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 carrot and stick options that capital has against good cop, um, bad cop. <laughs> yeah, it's the good cop and bad cop of capital. That's a good way to put it. I mean, I I kind of postulate a similar thesis in my um why billionaires support democrats video right. which basically says like the democrats play uh, the democrats are far from social democrats no uh, and, but they like to think that they are yeah and historically like under roosevelt they played that and obviously we might want to think as some right-wingers like to portray it that uh roosevelt and clement attlee in england represented a new ideology but in reality as if you can even take like the how they describe themselves as Roosevelt literally says, I saved capitalism. Yeah. And um, he, he, he was like a super the best rich friend. Guy. Yeah. The best friend the profit system ever had. Exactly. And, and essentially like embedded liberalism, more or less, it's not, it's to save capitalism, but from what exactly? It's usually when there's like political unrest and you have the pressure of labor unions, militant labor right. strikes, communists. And, and I would say like in the case of embedded liberalism in like Scandinavia, the, you know, the social democratic utopias, that we talk about in like uh, Sweden, Denmark, uh, or mm-hmm. Nord- Nordic countries like Finland, is that was heavily pressured by the USSR because they're literally neighbors right. and literally at the doorstep. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a huge kind of overlooked factor in the history of uh, European social democracy and and embedded liberalism, which uh, I think a lot of Americans tend to take for granted, just because that we are uh, fed such a one dimensional um history of the soviet union if we're taught anything at all about it yeah and i will say there is a some distinction to be made between like embedded liberalism as we're talking about it in practice and social democracy like how it was sort of founded in germany under the spd with people like kotsky and bernstein who thought that you kind of they saw it as like a process of the gradually voting in socialism but through like a gradual process which obviously didn't pan out but i think I think there are the, the common threads of social democracy and liberalism in those kind of historical ways is that right they, they're both trying to kind of round off the, the harsh edges of capitalism right they're trying to you know expand the social safety net and provide um, you know social provisions to to uh, working class people but I think they differ in uh, kind of terms of origin because like for example the german yes. social democratic movement was an or, was the organic product of workers struggling 
uh, whereas I think embedded liberalism in, in the United States, for example, was more a response to it than a product of it. Does that Absolutely. make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. I think embedded liberalism, you know, of Franklin Roosevelt and and the subsequent kind of um, social, you know, welfare capitalism that followed uh, right up until kind of the the seventies uh, under both Democrats and Republicans. By the way, this is not a mm-hmm. one party thing. Yeah, like ninety one percent tax rate under Eisenhower. Right, right, right. So I think the the, the critical difference is that. Um, embedded liberalism in the United States, despite having some common features, some common features with um, embedded or with social democracy in terms of policy, was structurally in terms of uh, how and why those decisions got made and who made them uh, were very different, Um, much more top-down in the United States and much more um, kind of an organic product of workers' movements in um, Europe. Yeah. And I would say like a good example between those sort of responsive social Democrats, like the, the embedded liberals and the more what you could call radical social Democrats is I would say like a perfect example is uh, Elizabeth Warren versus Jeremy Corbyn or Sanders is in the case of Corbyn, there is this like way to kind of implement a more or less socialistic worker owned economy uh, through uh, the liberal framework. Like Unlike a kind of what more Marxian or anarchist approach would be to like literally seizing private property, uh, Corbyn's policies more wanted to like encourage the establishment of worker co-ops when it comes to lending through credit unions, but also allowing workers to buy up their own enterprises when when uh, companies would file for bankruptcy. But uh, whereas like Elizabeth Warren is, there's no mention of worker ownership whatsoever. Right. It's really it's just, just technocratic solutions. Pretty much, yeah. It's big government. It's like when the government does stuff, like what people think right. you know, that socialism is. Right. And I think it's it's like now that we're talking about embedded liberalism, it's worth mentioning like how did that dissolve? And then we got neoliberalism, which was obviously, you know, it started more or less in the 70s and you had it first implemented actually under like a, a fascist dictatorship under uh, Augusto Pinochet in Chile. And um, kind of more over in uh, America, in the UK with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. But of course, it was kind of more graduals happening right. before that. I mean, you could but, arguably, you could you could point to, um, you know, somebody like Jimmy Carter. Uh, or even Kennedy. I would say Jeff Kennedy, too. It's like he started the deregulations. Right, right. Um, because, right, the post-war boom uh, really starts kind of hitting its... Uh, upper limits starting in the in the 60s really uh it's not until um real like bad stagnates like the stagflation crisis of the 70s hits that Mm -hmm. it's like really clear that capital is running out of steam yeah and um uh, more or less the way i think this is like a simplification but the way i define neoliberalism it's essentially a reversion to classical liberal liberalism something we'll talk about except that with classical liberalism essentially more or less postulates a limited government and that markets are best when left free and uh, with minimal intervention so that markets will promote the well-being of society. But, you know, what what that is, is like the flourishing of capital. And neoliberalism is more that, but plus a more heavy state role, whereas like the state needs to maintain the well-being of markets. So by any means necessary, the state literally uh, using force to open up more markets, whether that be like imperialism practice, the privatization, or in the case of uh, whereas before you would have the embedded liberals sort of 
um, negotiate with unions and different interest groups, whereas neoliberals, like we saw with Reagan, uh, literally just fired the air traffic control strikers. And, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> with and, a single freaking pen stroke, too. No weird yeah, ne- brutal you know, negotiations. Yeah, it was absolutely one of the most atrocious uh, crimes against organized labor in, in the history of the United States. Yeah, and it, and they like totally cracked down on all the protesters in a much more brutal fashion with oh, yeah. um, the militarization of the police. And we often attribute like neoliberal theory sometimes to Milton Friedman um, and sometimes Hayek and von Mises. But Hayek and von Mises were more strictly classical liberals. Uh, classical liberals is you know libertarianism. We can call it libertarianism. It's I know it's it's a little bit different. But I um, think it, it blurs the line a little bit though because I. Uh, we, we, you you mentioned earlier that um, just a moment ago that neoliberalism is really in many ways just a resurrection of classical liberalism on a, on the ideological level. I think is mm-hmm. really not so different from its prefixless ancestor. But what I think that you know a lot of the people who we now retroactively kind of avant la lettre call neoliberal were influenced by people like Mises, Hayek, and, um, you know, those other, um, you know, uh, thinkers of that era because they wrote um, and, you know, they were, they played advisory roles and and so on. Um, So, yeah, and we can see like the laissez-faire era, like the 1920s, uh, Calvin Coolidge, uh, Herbert Hoover era, that's like classical liberalism more or less, but uh, we should talk about the origins of classical liberalism, the ideas, and particularly the economic origins of it, like what incentivized it, what was its the project of classical liberalism. And, and of course, for those uh, who are not aware, the founders of classical liberalism often described to be people like John Locke, uh, the first major theorist who played a very important role in the drafting of the English constitution after the uh, so-called glorious revolution uh, as you know, England, you know, became one of the first, the first um, liberal democracy as we know it. And um, you have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is more on like the left wing outside of liberalism, of classical liberalism. And you have Adam Smith. I would say these thinkers do deviate in many ways, but you would, you would, people often describe classical liberals as John Locke, uh, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, and um in its in terms of classical liberal politicians, people like the who drafted the American Declaration of Independence, people like John Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and um, Ben Franklin, right? And uh, but yeah, like how would what do you think are important things to like uh, to to know when it comes to like the economic origins of liberalism? Because that's like not taught in most standard history textbooks, right? So. Before we get to that, I, I just wanted to kind of make a comment on what you just said there, which is that, um, you know, we kind of are through storytelling, through historiography, we are um, lumping together thinkers who um, had kind of, you know, not frequently, not in, totally incompatible ideology, um, but wouldn't have necessarily all been busy mates back in the day right like definitely um, not rousseau like rousseau right, and yeah, adam like smith rousseau, are the two. right exactly like rousseau adam smith and uh you know thomas jefferson are very <laughs> different thinkers and we i think we ascribe the liberalism 
moniker to them kind of retroactively because they have these sort of common uh, features that we are identifying doing that kind of historio- historiography and, and historical archaeology, you know, archaeology of ideas, whatever you want to call yeah. it. But that doesn't mean that they all got together in a smoke-filled room and decided this is what liberalism is. Right? And it's definitely like, um, I would say in terms of how liberalism turned out um, and what it was actually put in practice, I think it's better to like emphasize John Locke and John Stuart Mill and, you know, the founding fathers of America, because so like really liberalism practiced in England and uh, America, because John and Jacques Rousseau, we don't really see, you know, John and Jacques Rousseau essentially is, you could in today's terms describe him as like a socialist or as Engels kind of polemically calls him like a utopian socialist, right? Right. Proto-socialist. <laughs> yeah. Proto-socialist. Yeah. And in the case of Adam Smith was like, you know, one of the founders of what we call today capitalism, but Adam Smith more so, you know, he, he was against like the idea of landlords. He thought landlords right. was, a, was a stupid concept. He's often described with like the Georgian school of economics, which is more or less capitalism without, you know, landlordism. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Adam Smith, you, have, you mentioned kind of economic history and how that plays into the origins of, of contemporary liberalism. And I, I will be you know, perfectly honest, I don't know a huge amount about uh, all these other thinkers other than what we learned from reading uh, Lacerdo's book. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the case of Adam Smith, I do know a little bit more uh, in that. It, and if folks want to look into this uh, more detail, kind of check my sources here, check out um, uh the Invention of Capitalism by Michael Perelman. Uh, that's kind of the, the the source that I'm bouncing around in my head right now trying to formulate these thoughts, which is that Adam Smith um, himself was not a bourgeois. Like he was kind of a, you could p- p- place him in, in sort of as like a middle-class intellectual. And he was very much a economist uh, of the middle class in the sense that um, he was very kind of skeptical of the good intentions of the big property owners and the big bourgeoisie and that sort of thing, and and the kind of the potential for uh, an overbearing state apparatus. And at the same time, he was clearly very disdainful of uh, working people; thought they were, you know, simple and and you know, expendable and that sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> Um, well, there's, so, there's something worth mentioning with Adam Smith right there, because just remember like a quote that uh, Domenico Lozordo highlights in his book is that Adam Smith was like super critical of the the overemphasis of the liberal bourgeois on um, liberty and slavery, particularly because, of course, as we'll talk about later, is like the liberals were talking about uh, being against political slavery, which for them was like taxation from uh, taxation by the crown. Uh, but they were maintaining a stronger stance, more brutal stance on racial slavery because they wanted more liberty so that they could have total domination over their slaves. And Adam Smith found that totally despicable and hypocritical. The fact that they were talking about equality, yet they're like so pro-racial slavery. And uh, he actually has a quote where he says, I would prefer a despotic government, something like a despotic government rather than a, a without slavery, than a liberal government with race slavery yeah which is like an interesting point because you know he's ascribed to be this you know free marketeer who saw eye to eye with you know the founding fathers but that's as we know not true right and that i think is a really interesting like one of the really interesting antimonies of antinomies whatever i i hate that word 
uh, I never pronounce it correctly, of uh, early liberalism was the issue of slavery. Um, and uh, the word that uh, Lacerdo likes to use, the phrase that Lacerdo likes to use is Herrenfolk democracy or master race democracy. Yeah, I love right? that word. <laughs> These were <laughs> all, bring it up. yeah, I love, I, I mean, I hate it. In, in, well, yeah. in terms of of its substance, but I love it as a as a uh, conceptual tool, because you know these thinkers of of you know so called liberty um, were very much you know they're, they're concerned with the liberty of the of the white race in very explicit terms sometimes, and that is really striking when 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 reading Lacerdo and reading his the primary sources that he kind of brings in where these guys are like without a shred of, of self-awareness or irony, you know, saying we love Liberty. Liberty's great. Oh, by the way, black people are subhuman and should serve us for all eternity. Yeah. Like Immanuel Kant saying that a uh, blackness is like a disease that infects people. Right. Or, or uh, you have uh, John Locke saying a quote that the difference between some humans than others is sometimes greater than humans and beasts. Oh my god. Which is like he oh, says like some uh, terrible that's things. That's really awful. Or like John Stuart Mill who's often seen to be like the more left liberal often. He's the one for some reason a lot of left wingers like even Chomsky seem to be really charitable charitable to. But John Stuart Mill, he also said that like he justified uh, English imperialism and the genocide of uh, natives on the basis that like they didn't have reason and that they need to be civilized before like Right. Yeah. I think that that's another thing uh, that, and we're kind of, we're, before we um, started recording and we had this interesting little tidbit of conversation about how, um, you know, the imperatives are the, 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 uh, the exigencies of, of settler colonialism uh, are really inextricable from liberalism as a, uh, you know, as part of its material history, right? Because I think that one thing that we, keep kind of harping on is this difference between what liberalism tells itself that it is the stories that liberalism tells itself about how it came to be and what it is and mm -hmm. what it stands for is very different from it's different from but not extricable from its material history in both the way that it was used to justify mm -hmm. things like slavery and and settler you know genocide um and and setting up institutions of ostensible you know so-called liberty uh you know that's basically and, and the democracy. segue <laughs> yeah i was gonna i was gonna literally bring that up that's perfect but uh is it's it's funny because i think a lot of people who study political theory in university can probably attest to this because this was my experience is we're often taught about john locke and the founders of liberalism in such a romantic fashion and say look how progressive he was against the king you know look at monarchy is so backward and uh, he's he's often like you know juxtaposed with thomas hobbes who is defending the monarchy so he seems progressive uh, Locke seems progressive and he's talking about against slavery and that everyone has the individual right to private property and stuff. And we think, oh, private property, that's good. Like you can own that under King, but we had the, this totally idealist way of portraying the history of, of um, liberalism without detached from its economic context. We obviously will get into this is that when John Locke is talking about private property is talking about private property for a very select few individuals 
Um, and when he comes talks about liberty, we attribute liberty to freedom in all senses, freedom of speech, freedom to do as you please. It's like a negative freedom. Right. But, freedom but, um, from. but like, well, this is like, we know the answer to this question is what does liberty really mean when John Locke was talking about it? And of course, that's, that's the freedom for property owners and slave owners, which of course, slaves are property, <laughs> considered property is to have total domination of that and uh, not to, you know, be taxed, which for them, that taxation was the political slavery they sought to abolish. It wasn't racial slavery, right? Right. It's what they polemically called political slavery, which is, you know, uh, really, a, a, you know, in hindsight from, from us, it's a, it's a really kind of despicable hypocrisy. Yes, absolutely. And it's also, you see the word liberty used today is it's even obviously libertarians will always talk about liberty and whatnot. And right. you even have people on the left say that you'll ask them like why they aren't Marxists or anarchists. Right. And they'll say it's because I believe in liberty and private property laws. And right. it's like, well, liberty well, and property for who exactly, right? Right. Because like this As was Lenin's designed said. for a certain amount of people. You mentioned at one point about like how the economic context is separate from the um, ideas of liberalism, but it's also not separate from from it. And that's a good point because the thing, it might be one thing to, you know, expose um, liberalism and its hypocrisy and whatnot. And Hannah Arendt, sometimes uh, liberal thinkers like her, liberal social democratic thinkers will say stuff like, you can't really apply today's standards to them because back then slavery was like normalized and racism was normalized. But Lozardo no, makes, <laughs> yeah, that, that too, yeah. And uh, Lozardo makes like the really interesting thesis uh, that liberalism is not, was not, uh, slavery wasn't an exception to liberalism. Actually, liberalism is what made slavery worse and expanded slavery. So I'd like to hear you like talk about that a little bit, because I know we both read the same parts of the book that like highlight that and give a really interesting argument that's hard to really disprove. <laughs> Right. Then it all is connected to this uh, sort of uh, white colonial dialectic of who gets to count as a human and what does their freedom mean? What does their freedom count for? Um, so this is the really the, the central importance of Lacerdo's uh, concept of Herrenfolk democracy or master race democracy, uh, which is that, um, you know, this freedom is really the freedom to uh you know, rape, pillage, and plunder um, the the colonial, you know, the soon-to-be colonial landscape, um, and the freedom to uh, to exploit the labor of of, of uh, black slaves and uh, profit from their misery. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm I'm gonna highlight this little quote from the first, like the first page of the chapter in the book called "Liberalism and Racial Slavery: A Unique uh, Twin Birth." And, and it says, okay, slavery is not something that persisted despite the success of the three liberal revolutions. On the contrary, it experienced its maximum development. Following the success, the total slave population in the Americas reached around 330,000 in 1700, nearly 3 million by 1800, and finally peaked at over 6 million in 1850. So like the, and um then there was Great Britain with the second most amount of slaves, and then Spain came after. 
it's kind of he's trying to make the point that it's the irony, right, is that as these states became more liberal, like the most liberal states were the most slave owning states. And that is not just that's just not uh, a coincidence. It's because liberalism itself was an ideology, essentially, just to give autonomy from the crown from this emerging bourgeois. But what people might ask is how why wasn't this the case before? And I think it's really worth looking into like the economic origins of this bourgeois class right. and how they got so powerful and what their agenda was with liberalism, because like mercantilism, I think is right. inseparable from all of this. So, right. So, so the history of capitalism, as we're so often told, and this is kind of part of the Adam Smith's legacy, uh, is this mysterious thing that Adam Smith calls uh, prior accumulation and which Marx later acerbically refers to as primitive accumulation, uh, which is to say, um, you know, it all starts with uh, something. It doesn't, you know, capitalism doesn't start with a a pile of money. Uh, You need to uh, basically steal something, uh, as I think uh, Balzac said, um, or maybe it's not Balzac, I can't remember. Behind every great fortune is a is a great crime, which is to mm-hmm. say, um, capitalism uh, begins with colonial plunder and uh, you know enclosure and uh, expropriation of uh, peasant land, um, and uh, and grows from there. Uh, so, slavery is not only simply coextensive with capitalism in just terms of like, oh, well, they happen to be occurring at the same time. But like, no, actually slavery was absolutely critical in the development of of historical capitalism. It could not have existed without it. That's Um, something, oh, go on actually. And and, uh, totally inextricable from uh, uh, colonial plunder. Um, And for folks who want to really just get next level galaxy brain on this go read um gerald horn's books on the history of uh settler colonialism and slavery i would specifically recommend um the dawning of the apocalypse which is all about actually the 15th century he really 15th and 16th centuries he really he goes all the way back um you know five six hundred years ago to talk about um sort of the origins of capitalism in this era that we generally don't think of in our sort of um, stereotypical historiography of, of capitalism uh, being a very, you know, 18th century sort of phenomenon. Um, yeah, it's the, the rise of, uh, of um, capitalism and slavery are like totally indistinguishable, uh, not necessarily inseparable. Um, you know, and that's the other thing that gets totally abstracted from, uh, you know, particularly American history is is labor history. We are some. I mean, there's a lot about labor history itself that within sort of leftist circles that I think gets kind of papered over um, in terms of how racist it was. But that's a story for another time. Uh, but what I'm trying to get at is that labor history is just straight up not talked about in American. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of presentations of history. That's why we need people like Howard Zinn, uh, who you know the the the, the racist capitalist state absolutely hates right. for a reason. And uh, right. Robin Robin Kelly, Robin DG Kelly, and uh, Mike Davis; those are all real essential voices, I'd say. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and another thing I would add, as we were talking about like the origins of capitalism and and liberalism, is of course you had this. So the ideology of liberalism was more or less advocated by a bourgeois class. And what do we mean by bourgeois class? It was like the richest class of people below the aristocracy and the king. And this, the, how do these people get rich? Well, as we were talking about, is imperialism. And part of what kind of set this off was the Columbus obviously discovering all this new land. And with all these discoveries, you had this like unlimited potential of conquest. And you had, of course, countries like uh, Britain, Spain, France. And of course, um, as America was later established and after the American Revolution, they went on to do imperialism themselves take all of Spain's territories. And, uh, but like you had this international trade and because it was kind of risky to, you know, go out and the, go out and explore, there was this incentive to like steal as much as you can when you go out there. And right, obviously make it, make it worth your while, so to speak. Yeah. And also racism. In like, like a really perverse sense. Like, yeah. I don't mean to say that to trivialize. This isn't like, we're talking about the buying and selling of human beings for sheer financial economic gain like that there there's i I cannot like i have to sort of always force to take a step back and just like how horrific that is and how 500 years later we are still living in that system yep uh yeah it's really yeah and also like the racism at the time enabled them just to the imperialists to basically massacre and they will they they first attempted to of course enslave the indigenous populations but because they would die from a lot of the sicknesses that the whites brought there uh they weren't as easily enslavable compared to the you know african populations and um oh and they would straight up like murder them yeah they just kill them yeah (laughs) well uh, what i mean is uh you know that Right. The other thing we really have to d- disentangle this idea that the that the indigenous folks were just like stupid and didn't know what was going on. No, they knew what was going on, and they were like, "Fuck this, we're gonna fight you." Yeah. And yeah. you know, some the other thing that gets like really glossed over is that like the the conquerors, despite having you know actually you know ultimately prevailed, like they did not always win. They sometimes they would go in there. Uh, to you know, loot, rape, pillage, and plunder, and just get their asses handed to them and go crying home. And you can see the outcomes in like South Americas because you have some countries in South America that have the indigenous populations still survived. Like uh, whereas you and, see some some yeah. areas like Argentina was totally an indigenous country, but you just don't see you see it's all white people there, and it's like what happened to the, all the indigenous people? It's like well, uh, they killed them. <laughs> oh, and I think about like a, a place like you know, Bolivia, where, you know, the, there's still active, you know, repression mm-hmm. against the in- indigenous folks there. And um, just the way that um, uh, Morales w- was was treated by the American media and by, you know, like he was, he's like, I think, perhaps their first indigenous president. Um, I think so. Yeah. He, he was so roundly vilified by American media and, you know, oh, he's a dictator. And Oh, by the way, you know, Janine Agnes, the, the, the white fascist, is actually the legitimate president of, of Bolivia. <laughs> That's absolutely disgusting. I mean, Venezuela, too, is the way the, yeah. they did, same, America same does deal. the same. But uh, And also, like, the way Afro-Venezuelans are treated in Venezuela is absolutely horrifying. And you can see the difference by how, like, the party, uh, Maduro and the Chavistas treat uh, the uh, Afro-Venezuelans versus the opposition. And you can clearly tell where the imperialist lineage lies 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anyways, like back uh, back to what we were saying is like these people, these the imperialists, basically, you can really boil it down to the British, the French, Spanish, Portuguese, um, who are basically, you know, they, they found this limitless possibility of discovery. And, you know, they got really wealthy from this trade. And we often describe this era as mercantilism because the people who are getting rich were like basically merchants, you know, and um, also they were buying, they were taking people and slaving them and selling them like as on the market and yeah, uh, merchants. I mean, specifically merchants acting uh, under the franchise of the crown, which is yes. what we, which is what we mean by mercantilism, right? That's these aren't just like, you know, independent business people going out and doing this stuff. They're all always like, and this is where I think we really have to talk about like the development of the capitalist state, because I think that is also really kind of been hollowed out from from the history of like the origins of so-called liberal democratic government which is that uh is that it's it's again it's one it's inextricable from colonialism and and slavery but it's also inextricable from the development of the contemporary capitalist state all of the institutions that we know today from police to, to to legal institutions to um you know all the rest um are have kind of their uh you know, uh, they bear the marks of of of, of this uh, era. Well, police literally having a direct w- was created to protect private property, right? Absolutely. Is right. um and as like peasants became lost their means of subsistence, so they they you know were naturally rebelling, and they it was it was kind of alien the fact that people you know rich people could now just see a park and be like, I own that now. <laughs> I'm going to buy that. I own this. It seems absurd. So you have a lot of people infringing on these private property rights, these glorious private property rights. And uh, and the police are created to basically stomp these people out. So liberty for the few. But uh, it's worth mentioning just back. So the merchants, you know, they would get all these, uh, they would get slaves, they would get all all of what they found, you know, natural raw materials, gold, diamonds, all all kind of things, just or, or simply just things that they would sell. They'd make a lot of money, but they were taxed a lot by the crown, the king and the aristocracy. Uh, so they weren't getting like the full share of what they were getting. So if naturally you had this kind of consciousness uh, form amongst the emerging bourgeois class and liberalism was basically emerged out of that. It was like a way to kind of legitimize them having their cake and eating it too. Uh, and to tell the king, fuck off, why are you taking our stuff? Uh, and that's what you know they polemically describe as political slavery. And, and that like we have to understand, like if you're looking at this in a Marxian analysis, like you can look at liberalism as the superstructure that helped rationalize this transition to a capital, what we know now is a capitalist state, capitalist liberal state that has protects private property of these people who, you know, essentially led what we call the uh, bourgeois revolutions, whether it be the glorious revolution in America or the um, you mean England, sorry, England, England, <laughs> or uh, the American revolution. Right. right. Uh, but is, never the Haitian revolution. For yes. Some reason. I wanted to bring that up later actually, but now you, you brought it up is that that's, that's another element is like the hypocrisy of liberalism is when the, the Haitian revolution happened in uh, San Domingo or Saint Dominique. How do you San, San Domingue? I don't know. I don't speak French. Yeah, San Domingue. No, they but, were uh, all, all these erstwhile liberals. With the with the due exception of Hegel, by the way, they were all scandalized by it. 
Yeah, that's that's the irony, right? It's like when liberal ideals were actually practiced by black people who took them seriously, and yeah. uh, the populations uh, uh, in um... it's like okay, liberty, fraternity, equality. Yeah, those are great ideas. Uh, slave, uh, uh, <laughs> enslaved people. Hmm. Uh, what if we tried to enact those things, white people? Uh oh. <laughs> Basically, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, liberty, except for the people who are uh, black, brown, uh, or, you know, not or women, <laughs> or, or anyone I mean, who isn't rich, white dudes, basically, right, because those aren't people. Yeah, that's, was- that's another point is that I think, uh, you know, you know, uh, and Luzordo also makes this point as well. And he's not the first to make this point, but which I'm about to say is that um, the ideology of liberalism and this idea of reason kind of help legitimize a lot of what the liberals would do in terms of slavery or the treatment of indigenous peoples is the the idea that some people have this reason and have achieved this civilized liberal way of thinking, whereas the other people haven't, and they're not people. They haven't realized like humanity's potential. It's an intrinsic um, racialized quality. It's, it's something that it's not something that can be learned. It's something that uh, is, is it's uh, inherent. Yeah, and that's where we can see a direct, a direct lineage between social Darwinism and liberalism. Is that like you can see like liberalism was a way to rationalize this these economic incentives, economic goals. That's more powerful in a way than religion. Well, of course, religion also played a role with like Calvinism, but um, but uh, we also see like an effort was made to like create a science under social Darwinism that went in hand in hand with classical liberalism to kind of justify the domination of, um, of rich whites from to everyone else, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, or is there something you were? Yeah. To right. And, and I, I think that, you know, uh, the Marxist framing of base and superstructure in terms of like economic base being, you know, slavery and, and early, you know, colonialism and the uh, superstructure being the development of liberalism. I think that is a uh, really relevant analysis here. Um, but it does also show how, uh, right, that it is not just this one-way relationship um, that base and stru- superstructure are in dialectic, they're in conversation, um, and that the base is not like this, like, I think the kind of mar- the sort of pop Marxist, I guess, um, misreading of of base superstructure is that like the base determines the sur- the superstructure in no, this. No, like, they just go hand in hand. Right. Right. Yeah. It's 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 not it's not this like it, it's the rails and and the superstructure is the train. Now a lot of things can go on on that train, but the train is on the rails, right? Like, uh, you know, things uh, you can't have, uh, you know, you. Uh, you can't text anybody in the year 1700. You have to write a letter and, 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 you know, send it by horseback. Right. But often like the base does come first, like in the sense of the, the motives, financial motives of the liberal bourgeois class and right. the kind of liberal, the, the ideology sort of follows that. Right. In like Althusserian terms, like determination in the last instance, I think is how he would put mm. it. Yeah, given that we're uh, talking about the base and the superstructure in the Marxian sense, I thought it would be important to make it some key differentiations between Marxism and liberalism. Although, of course, class, the different differences between classical liberalism and Marxism may seem rather obvious, but 
as we know, there's also a kind of left liberalism. Uh, you can draw that back to people like Rousseau and Voltaire, uh, so, or maybe even Adam Smith for some people. But in more modern left liberal thinkers, we can look at someone like John Rawls as a, a person who describes more or less what could be looked at as like a Bernie Sanders Corbyn yeah. type of politics. Or uh, Gunnar um, Myrdal, I think. Is sure. Somebody I think of very immediately in terms of contemporary kind of left liberal or social, social democratic, excuse me, social democratic. And in terms of the way these frameworks, whether in the left or right manifestations, uh, we should make some important demarcations between idealism and dialectical materialism, uh, which I would, which are really the two different ways in which liberals versus Marxists tend to see society, which I think is more important than what we believe because talking about ideals for Marxists is almost like misses the point because Marxists, we like to look at reality versus uh, and material economic conditions that determine um, politics versus just ideals in the abstract sense. Right. So how, how would As you describe like what people really need to know in terms of like these two distinctions, which are hard to um, reconcile. Right. And, you know, I think that especially folks who are really accustomed to the vocabulary of materialism versus idealism can kind of get bogged down in this, uh, like, sort of pejorative dialectic in which, you know, materialism is the thing that's correct and idealism is the thing that is incorrect, which I think is just like idealist. (laughs) And that's really, I know, I know I just went full circle. Well, there, it's definitely but, um, not dialectical. No, yeah, it's, it's very dogmatic. It's very, um, uh, it's a sort of binaristic thinking that I don't think is befitting of dialectics. Um, but anyhow, uh, which is that, um, I, I think there's some things that are in terms of historiography and that's, by the way, Listeners will probably recognize this is my favorite word to say. I say it over and over and over, historiography, um, for those who are not familiar with the term. Um, and academic historians are probably going to um, tear me a new one for it. But it is, in the way that I use it, it is the sense in which uh, we tell our, the way that we tell ourselves history. Historiography is about method. Um, and the thing that I think really distinguishes Marxist historiography from liberal historiography is that uh, liberal historiography is very kind of transhistorical in its thought. So the idea of historical transformation, how does it happen um, for, I think, Marxists is really thinking about the very concrete specificities of a given uh, historical situation um, and looking at all the different, um, you know, causal uh, interactions, uh, particularly in the realm of social forces, social classes uh, that shaped um, those conditions, right? Everything from technology to uh, culture and religion and, um, you know, economics, right? It's it's very kind of all-encompassing and very... Um, that is what we mean by dialectics, is looking at, at the whole, looking at the connection between past, present, and future. And contradictions. Um, I yes, think that's the biggest right. thing, right? Contradictions, like, right, in the Marxist Rather than sense, a linear sense, which is like often the way things are normally looked at, it's like a linear genealogy, whereas we'll look at like the discontinuities, the contradictions. Right. 
Yeah. You're right. The moments of uh, of kind of to use some Maoist terminology, mo- moments of uh, continuity rupture. and rupture. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, there's uh, things that that cause both stability and instability with within social systems, uh, within historical epochs. There are forces that are trying to maintain status quo and forces that are trying to disrupt it, and sometimes. You know those forces that maintain the status quo are uh, really effective and last for very very long periods of time. Um, uh, liberal historiography tends to be very transhistorical by context and looking at things kind of in isolation and as sort of a disconnected, like ideas. Jum- yeah, jumble of events. And I think ideas is maybe and uh, men and great men. Right. That's often like yeah, great men theory. Great is men such are a... both. Kind of, you know. Uh, centering the power of ideas and centering particularly the ideas of great men, um, I think is, is characteristic of, of, of liberal historiography and even left liberal historiography. Yeah, it frequently is. Yes. Um, But I think, and, and right, like the tendency in like left liberal historiography is just, well, let's, you know, shift the focus to the, the undervalued voices, right. Which I'm not saying is bad. Like, you know, they want to go back and reread, um, uh, you know, and, and boost um, uh, the stories of the otherwise marginalized yeah. folks, which I think is admirable. That's that's good. And that's great. I think Marx, Marxists and other uh, heterodox uh, thinkers should should definitely be doing that. Um, uh, but that it, it, it tends to not it tends to retain the great man framing. Even even if it is kind of ostensibly trying to bend the stick in the other direction, and there's a perfect example of this is that um, Oliver. I would compare someone like Oliver Stone, who's like a left liberal, versus David Harvey and how they Harvey and how they talk about kind of neoliberalism. Is if you see like uh, Oliver Stone's most recent documentary series that used to be on Netflix, it's not anymore, but it's called the Untold History of the United States. I think it's it's pretty good for like a you know a. a pop like history a, type thing yeah exactly but the thing is, is is it's still it tells you a lot of the things that we aren't told in like american history textbooks in school but he tells it still from this idea of great men like he said he'll show saying roosevelt brought this like gentle era of capitalism and then reagan and thatcher brought this neoliberalism and bush brought this war neocon ideology and it's it's more like and it's ideas right and it's it seems to kind of almost be more more about in that way that you just talked about like i think it's a little bit it seems to be a a little bit more about evoking an affect than actually like talking about like concrete historical consequences yes and that's the difference between dialectical materialism is because well number one he he misses the materialism right is like the economic conditions of stagnation that kind of led to this shift in uh backwards towards like a classical liberal framework that we now got manifested as neoliberalism but also the the contradictions because it's not just of course ronald reagan but we saw neoliberalism emerge much early under uh someone like jimmy carter yeah um it's 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 obviously like there's a lot of contradictions in all of this and um i can't remember who it was but i can't maybe it was chomsky who said uh Nixon was the last liberal president. 
Really? Wow. I can't, I can't, I don't think maybe it wasn't um, Chomsky. I can't well, remember who said that. You know, that that's something I, I will also bring up because oh, Chomsky. Nixon, Nixon also very famously said, we're, we are all Keynesians. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, which is to say, um, which is referring to um, the economic theories of, of John Maynard Keynes, who, again, if we were to t- kind of t- take an idealist conception of history, John Maynard Keynes was uh, solely responsible for uh, you know, embedded liberalism, right. um, because, well, and of course I do think that studying John Maynard Keynes and his theories is, is very important to understanding, uh, how embedded liberalism functioned kind of on a technical level, however, to kind of, and this is something that I've kind of had to undo in, in my learning of, of the history of economic thought, uh, which is that, well, for one thing, Keynes was not the first to the punch in terms of, uh, <laughs> Uh, kind of constructing, uh, you know, techno- te- technocratic managerial uh, social democ- sort of quasi social yeah. democratic policy. Um, and despite the tremendous intellectual accomplishment that his um, book, uh, The General Theory of Money, Employment and Interest is, it's a, a great work, no doubt. But, um, right, like, I, I think a lot of folks will point to Keynes and Keynesianism and, and, or, you know, to use the term we've been using embedded liberalism as sort of this thing that was a product of uh, Keynes himself, rather than like the multitude of other uh, historically specific factors that um, acted in confluence to produce such a theory. Yeah. And you, at one point you mentioned Noam Chomsky and that made me think of something is the, that, uh, He's an example of someone who, well, who he's actually like a self-described anarchist, but he often invokes classical liberalism from a left-wing point of view and says that the ideals of classical liberalism are actually compatible with, um, you know, social, what he calls libertarian socialist. Yeah. Well, uh, all, all of my anarchist, all my anarchist comrades call Chomsky a liberal. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, I think the th- thing about Chomsky, I can't really tell if he does that because he's trying to see seem very accessible to like whoever is interviewing him like a audience because he often invokes even people like abraham lincoln like i could see why he'll he'll say stuff like john stewart mill and adam smith would be terrified at today's society well mill maybe adam smith that's i can see him invoking adam smith but he'll often invoke like abraham lincoln which i know abraham lincoln said some radical things like those who should work in the factories own them but what did abraham lincoln do exactly that was really left wing, uh, other than, you know, the, the slavery, but like, that's, that, that's also the great man bias, right. Is as if right. and totally slave, ign- it ignores all the slave revolts and the history well, that actually right. led to. And the other thing that it ignores is that, you know, this was not because Lincoln was like a anti-racist, you know, emancipator in his heart of hearts. No, that was a cynical, like political move that he made to win the war. Yeah. And it's also like the South not wanting to pay tariffs um all of the economic factors involved but uh, right. the thing is is Chomsky will make he's not the first to make this argument that libertarian socialism and um classical liberalism have things that are compatible like he'll say he'll invoke that um having not having a master and having a moral equality and liberty are things that are all compatible, but this is like the idealist problem, right? Is you're looking at the ideals, but there, it leaves out a couple of things. Number one, how different people with different class interests interpret these ideals. Like 
liberty to people who are uh, working class is very different from liberty who are a property owning class. And um, also like moral equality, you know, as we showed before, it's like these things were not practiced, uh, not, not, not obviously equality in economic sense, but not even moral equality. That's never exercised even to this day, really in liberal societies, theoretically, everyone has moral equality over the law, but you know, liberalism was founded on slavery, but even after slavery was abolished, there's so much systemic racism where it's clearly bollocks that people right. are uh, equal of the law. Like you'll see uh, the perfect example is this how, you know, black people are treated by juries versus white people or the, the level of uh, sentences or the, I would encourage anyone who hasn't right. read it already to look at the book, the new Jim Crow. Uh, Michelle think, Alexander. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, is with what left liberals will typically appeal to, they'll say all these ideals and they'll say, well, don't you agree with that? Does that's compatible with leftism, right? And that, um, but uh, I could say at most, maybe anarchism is like liberalism taken seriously, but even that it's not, I wouldn't say anarchism is even compatible with uh, liberalism because private property, like anarchists, maybe there's, there's some differences among various anarchists, but primarily if you look at like the main anarchist theorists like Bakunin, Proudhon, or more recent anarchists of like 1980s and 70s, like uh, uh, Murray Bookchin, I mean, like they, they don't believe in private property. And of course, private property doesn't mean you don't believe in personal property. Like you can have your toothbrush in your house and right. all of that I think shit, we're right? More, more than familiar with those sort of We're familiar with that, right? Private like property maybe... means the offices, the buildings, the factories, and and the, the land, not not your toothbrush and not your TV. But I mean, we're familiar with that. But like, so you'd be surprised, like a lot of people who are just trying to learn about this stuff, that's often what, right. what pushes it's them a, to the liberal direction. Is that's a very they... deliberate, it's a very deliberate slippage too on the part of, uh, you know, liberals and anti-communists, which is that, you know, the left wants to take away your toothbrush is it, like, I know it's a meme, but like it is, it's so effective because yeah. um, this notion of, of, and I, again, like I always tie, I tie this to um, both the, the kind of logic of capital uh, and capital accumulation and also settler colonialism, right? Because you know, the, the ideal of property in the United States in particular is, is, really tied up like who's even allowed to own property to begin with is is historically you know it's tied to are you white um and you know the sort of sort of things that still persist today in terms of who is and isn't allowed to kind of participate in so-called consumer society um yes because right like uh you know the, the the example that i always go to is that black unemployment is you know, historically, always disproportionately much higher than it is for uh, for uh, for white people. Uh, generational uh, wealth, and, and and that and you know that that's right. Like the logic of accumulation there, right? Like those are all deeply racialized factors that like liberalism um, can really kind of only pay superficial lip service to because it doesn't want to actually like reckon with the like deep historical consequences of, you know, uh, well, um, this is the thing I would really want to dig into is that the biggest problem with liberalism from Marxist point of view is that, you know, it's, it's, it's based fundamentally in abstractions and it presupp it presupposes a kind of, uh, context of, um, of like harmony in which everyone agrees on something. And, um, it, and it often in the same reality. 
Yeah, that too, right? Because it's like, it, it doesn't consider that there's so many different ways to interpret these ideals or how to put them into practice. And some of them are so, you know, there's, um, there's the terms like communism works in theory, but not in practice. But I would say like liberalism doesn't work in theory or in practice. Because like, um, for example, let's say equality. And I think Marx does a great job at talking about this in critique of the Gotha program is mm-hmm. liberals like to talk about equality and the irony is communists are associated with wanting this like perfect equality but that's not something really marx emphasizes so much for marx marxism no. <laughs> is, is 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 like freedom and to each according to their ability to each according to their need things well, which, and all our needs are different so <laughs> exactly so like that's why we can't really have like equality is meaningless like how would, would a person with five different um with five kids be treated the same as one with one right. kid uh, that's or, exactly what he talks about in Critique of the Gotha Program. Exactly. And that's why Marxism fundamentally is just the materialist point of view. We look at like the concrete reality as opposed to this abstract ideals. And you, it, it seems maybe obvious in the way we're talking about it. And But you, like people are would be surprised by the amount of left liberals in academia who will just not really... Um, just won't entertain Marxism whatsoever. And they'll just try to theorize their way into a perfect society. I think John Rawls is the perfect example of this, but you also have like this whole school of left libertarianism, which is somehow not socialist, but it's like left libertarianism. It's, they call it like, it is Rawlsian in many respects, but like the idea of like a property owning, a property owning democracy. Um, But it's, it's all like in in theory, right? Uh, or even have Rawls tries tries in a way to kind of like theorize an equality right. of outcome. Uh, right. But- well, like Walt, Rawls's whole thing uh, is a, is a thought experiment with the the veil of the so called veil of ignorance, uh, which is that that actually it's a lovely thought experiment. However, that is not it's a thought experiment. <laughs> it, it's it's uh, and it actually I think is pretty effective as a thought experiment. I think, however. The thing that it presupposes kind of implicitly is that uh, we can, is that either that is how our government already works or that's how it could work potentially under, uh, you know, with a few tweaks. Um, He even went to, he met with Bill Clinton, like that kind of tell, that kind of reveals his mindset a little bit. Like he really believed that, you know, maybe you could convince people in power to like adopt your ideals, which totally... does not look at power in class dynamics. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other thing that really distinguishes, I would say, Marxism and anarchism from liberalism in this very um, big way, which is that liberalism, generally speaking, views the state as neutral. Um, It's a neutral mediator between interests. Um, And Marxists, um, you know, clearly view the capitalist state as a, um, you know, what what is in the manifesto uh, they say um sorry i think it's in marx's critique well it's you can find like there's these kind of arguments in multiple writings like whether it be angles principles of communism right or a, a certain passage in the manifesto i think you're Manifestos, referring to but yeah also there's the the Mar- marx's a uh, critique of hegel's philosophy of right yeah like that's the big one where he kind of like critiques the idea of hegel's liberal theorization of the state being this like neutral protector of yeah. freedom well, and the, the the particular passage that I'm thinking of, and again, I'm kind of quoting from memory, so this may be off by a word here and there, but um, uh, the modern executive state is 
little more than a managing committee for the common affairs of the bourgeoisie, um, right? So the Marxist view is very explicitly that the capitalist state serves the interests of uh, the capitalist class, and it is uh, inextricable from kind of maintaining, right? Like capitalists are, are in competition with each other, uh, you know, however uh, they are, and again, to paraphrase Marx, they're a band of warring brothers, right? They have, they fight over some things, but they know that they have a common interest in preserving their class power. Um, yeah. So that is, that is what the capitalist state is for from the Marxist perspective, I think, you know, and I, you know, anarchists have, I think, a much more, and I'm probably going to get raked over the coals for this because I don't know anarchist theory very well, but I think that their conception of the state is much more broad and transhistorical in that, you know, the state as such is, um, you know, a, a, a self-perpetuating institution of power and, um, you know, that it, that you can't, like, for example, have a socialist state because the whole idea of anarchist socialism or anarch anarchist communism is to, is to abolish the state um, as such uh, mm -hmm. and not uh, in the Marxist conception, which uh, does provide room for a state that uh, is controlled by proletarian class power that's a whole different can of worms i don't want to get into that yeah. however however uh, and again apologies to my anarchist comrades out there i'm probably engaging in a bit of caricature i'm sincerely not trying to uh, straw man anybody however um what i am trying to get at is that both anarchism and marxism in contradistinction to liberalism, both conceive of the state as an institution of power of capital. Pretty much like the, the they that's what the anarchists and Marxists really agree on is that the state is, you know, an instrument of class domination. You can see that with the interests that the police have or the military and uh, global imperialism or just the way laws are structured, right, to really protect private property above all else. And I think it's, you know, one thing just to clarify is that when we say like this state is an instrument of class domination, that doesn't mean that all the politicians are actively thinking to themselves, oh, how am I going to like serve all these corporations or, or and fuck everyone else? Just like I right. serve the corporate power. While that may be kind of the case in America, because America is like reaching the point of kleptocracy <laughs> where like people straight up, you know, plutarchic fascism, which I think is, I'm sort of arriving at an analysis uh, here that um, neoliberalism has uh, kind of in practice, uh, and we can maybe talk about this uh, in a, later or perhaps in a different podcast episode altogether, but I personally am of, of the mind that what we have been calling neoliberalism in the uh, United States and, and kind of the rest of the sort of Anglo-American capitalist worlds uh, in the last 40 years has really just been a slow creep of of what we historically have called fascism. We've seen a uh, total repression of, of proletarian um, movements and workers' power. We've seen drastic militarization of police, massive expansion of, of kind of imperialist warfare and, um, you know, military, you know, secret coups and, and that sort of thing. And we've seen a electoral system that has, you know, was never very democratic to begin with. However, it's becoming, uh, you know, really just drastically more undemocratic. Um, 
with the consolidation of, of monopoly power um, in the hands of you know fewer and fewer um, you know big players and the consolidation of political power in the hands of increasingly uh, reactionary um, politicians and um, and so on. So uh, that's my thesis anyway. Uh, maybe that's a spicy take. But that's well, a hill. That's a hill I'll die on. <laughs> well, that's actually kind of what I wanted. I'll, I'll, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. But that's something I was going to bring up towards the end. That's is what dif- dif- what I, differentiates uh, liberalism and fascism? But before that, I, I just want to like clarify the original point is that um, you know when we say it's not just always in America. This is more the case where people the politicians are actively like funded by corporations and their campaigns. But I think if you compare like a lot of European capitalist liberal states. And um, it's not so direct. It's more so that like the laws of the state from its very inception are designed to protect capital. Like if you look at the way laws are structured, it is literally to protect private property. It's it's not about, you know, um, proletarian power or anything like that. So like it's more the institutions and as well as the way do you ever find like we might think it's a coincidence that it's so hard to pass legislation that benefits workers but it's so easy to like just immediately start wars, get funding for them or to, you know, uh, or take away or, worker uh, rights. Right. Or give Jeff Bezos $10 billion so he can buy the James Bond franchise. Yeah. Like the federal reserve is a perfect he wanted example. <laughs> like the, the, the federal reserve is literally autonomous from, uh, well, it's theoretically autonomous from the presidency and they act so-called like, uh, neutrally but what it's not neutral obviously the federal reserve is just to bail out the corporations whenever they you know uh screw up basically right like as we saw in the coronavirus like they're willing to print how many trillion dollars um immediately but you know we we act for ask for like free college student debt alleviation which is is not even in the billions it's right uh, and we saw that you know back in in 2008 and 2009 with um you know the the financial crash, there was suddenly, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars available to uh, bail, you know, to buy up toxic assets that had gone bad in the crash, uh, but not a fucking cent for the, you know, millions of people who had just lost their homes uh, or the people who are, you know, graduating college with, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or whatever uh, of, of, you know, college debt and, and, and so on. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And there was, of course, more money to um, dump into these, uh, you know, predatory uh, wars that only got worse uh, under the Obama administration, of course, as we know, Um, you know, and and by the Biden administration that we just passed the biggest military spending bill in U.S. history since the end of World War Two. Yeah, well, it's like it's nearly a trillion dollars. It's not surprised when like private when that's something that's occupied by the market, right? It's not even um, a public function. It's literally directly been, like the market has hands in it when it comes to the right. stocks of um, Lockheed, Lockheed Martin. And, yeah, going up. And Raytheon and Northrop Grumman. And, but you yeah, um, you, uh, you, you mentioned so that um, what we call neoliberalism being very authoritarian could be called fascism. See, I'll push back on that because I would argue that, you know, contrary to liberalism, you know, proclaiming the ideals of tolerance and democracy, right? Uh, tolerance and democracy. 
was always authoritarian from its very beginning. I don't think we can really point to many times in history of liberal states where there was this like tolerance and democratic, perfect democracy. Like it, there was always an element of authoritarianism. You yeah. can say, oh, how come Canada wasn't, isn't as authoritarian in America? Well, it's because there's not as much dissent to crack down on. When there was a socialist dissent, for example, in the, the 1950s and 60s, there was during the Red Scare and 40s in the Red Scare, uh, our president, R.B. Bennett, or sorry, our prime minister, R.B. Bennett, uh, literally de- uh, cracked down and deported suspected communists. When there is a threat, you'll see capitalist state all cl- across the globe be super authoritarian when it comes to class domination. So I see like liberalism, it was always authoritarian. Right. practice like liberal capitalism so that's why i think we can't really look at it solely economically because if we look at fascism as the merger of state and corporate power uh and you know the one class dominating another class and desperation like that's just really what liberal capitalism always was well, you know so, so, so how do we so, call it fascism so yeah so let me interject and say that i think that the distinction that i have come to kind of uh, embrace in in my thinking and my language about it is that I don't even disagree with what you just said. I think that, you know, so-called liberalism has, has been, has had, uh, you know, uh, very uh, uh, tendency of social domination has been in there from, from its inception uh, and in practice has been incredibly authoritarian, especially for, uh, you know, non-white folks. but I do think that uh, fascism does actually represent a qualitative escalation, um, right? In the sense, in, in kind of a Hegelian sense, we pat for the passage from quantity, quantitative change into qualitative change. I do think there are major, you know, transformations at play that are not. Um, again, I think that they're all kind of, as you said, like they're inherent to the structure of existing institutions within capitalist state and within kind of the internal like ideological contradictions of liberalism itself. However, um, you know, in its own racist history, however, I do think that fascism does represent a a qualitative escalate, you know, a a quantitative uh, transformation, sorry, getting all of my dialectical wires crossed here. The quantitative changes of of you know escalating police violence, of escalating um, imperial interventions, of uh, and all these other things that we've been talking about, I do think that it does actually lead to like a big qualitative leap in terms of what the state, how far the state will go to um, get what it wants um, and protect the interests of the bourgeoisie and. Uh, Right, like things like, you know, world wars have have um, been coincident with it, and I think that uh, personally, the, the the reason that I I go as far as calling the current uh, epoch uh, fascist as opposed to simply neoliberal uh, is that um, that does seem to be where the um, internal tendencies of uh, capital right now are leading because we see, uh, you know, uh, the foreign policy kind of establishment is increasingly kind of aiming its guns at, at Russia and China and 
um, you know, threat basically threatening all of us with another giant world war. But, but this um, is what which, I'll say though, is like how we still are left without a real way to distinguish liberalism from fascism because the thing is, is I just, I just don't think we can really analyze it solely economically. The thing, the reason why I think we actually do need almost an idealist way to look at fascism is because fascism itself is an idealist, um, a completely idealist, you know, ideology that is very different from how it is in practice. Like if, for example, like if we can look at, I think the best way to differentiate liberalism and, um, fascism is to look at the difference between reactionary and liberal thinkers, why they often kind of supported a lot of the same things. And of course, when fascism in practice, you know, is state capitalism, like Nazi Germany, despite presenting itself as national socialism uh, and kind of using this occult mythology was just really ramped up state capitalism. Same with Mussolini. Uh, but if we look at like thinkers like Julius Savola, who's often thought of as like one of the most important yeah. thinkers of the far right, grandpappy of, of fascism <laughs> yeah like i mean uh, someone like steve bannon overtly worships him and uh, uh and um you have people like julius avolia they advocate more or less for a form of feudalism because they actually see capitalism is bad liberal capitalism because it's progressive and it erodes the family and tradition so like their right, goal the, is like mark saying like uh all that a solid melts into air sense of that like they're, and they're kind of right in a certain sense. So like like the, the irony, right, is like someone being like, you can't really be like a conservative in a very narrow sense. Yeah. In a narrow sense, yeah. Like first of all, like, I could give a shit about tradition, but like someone who cares about tradition, uh, like it's funny to be like a capitalist and be pro tradition because you see like why is the family disintegrating, and well, that's ultimately just because people have to work more. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but uh, you. The thing is, is people like Avola were kind of, you know, I would say like, to put it nicely, like uh, n the least contradictory reactionary thinkers in the sense that they actually had, I think really like the only way to have a real conservatism is like a, a, a totally like a feudalistic order that's like a zero growth economy that just stays, you know, and you can right. see he's not the first conservative to really advocate for a type of system like that, like Edmund Burke. Um, right. Basically monarchists. Yeah. Monarchists. Uh, right. that, well, then, and that's the thing is historically fascism has had so much overlap with monarchy. Like Franco Spain is a perfect example. The Franco fascists hold that held up monarchist flags and they often appealed to the old like time when Spain was like this, um, when, when, when Spain was feudalist and was like all powerful right. and had all these territories. Um, so like there's that, there's also, you know, uh, in Mussolini's Italy, there was all these appeals to the Roman empire. Right. So Make I Italy think... great again. <laughs> Make Italy Rome again. <laughs> yeah, somehow. Right? Um, uh, well, and I think like, so like, in, to... whereas in practice, sorry. like the, in, or sorry, like in practice, I think like the Marxist analysis is more accurate at describing reality, right? Like in the sense that in practice, what the, the ruling class does not want monarchism. Like they, they're the ones who rebelled against monarchism, right? Is they want they want capitalism and they'll just use whatever ideology to dupe the masses. But this Marxian explanation of fascism doesn't really capture what fascism is as an idea, as an ideology, and how it appeals to people. Right. That's where, where I take issue with right. kind of the economist understanding of it. Right. Well, and that uh, that's and, and that's something that I'll t touch on, which is that I also I just want to be very clear, even though I do have this sort of um, econ economic, political economic analysis. I don't discount other 
um, analyses. Like I don't, I, I can't, I don't think it can be reduced to solely those those factors that that I that I had been stressing. There are these kind of social psychological dimensions to fascism that that appeal to a certain um, kind of subset of people. Um, you know, ostensibly the the Heron folk, right? The master race, but the settler, you know, the settlers, the set- yeah, the, right. The no, middle it's, class it's, settlers, right? Exactly. Oh, well, and I think in the the conditions, right? The other thing that I think a lot of people get hung up on is is trying to look at fascism, uh, sort of kind of trying to shoehorn it into this way of like always comparing it kind of one to one with Italy or or Germany or or Spain, uh, which I think. I, don't get me wrong. I think it's very important to analyze those those forms of of fascism. However, um, I think we risk kind of falling into to to that sort of trans historical thinking and comparing constantly comparing everything to Nazi Germany doesn't hold up because no, absolutely not. Right? Like, well, I think Nazi Mar- Germany is analysis, right. The Marxist analysis is to the, the the principle behind the Marxist historical analysis is to look at the historically specific features of um, you know of, of 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 the national culture and 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 terrain and specifically with with as regards fascism, right? It is an appeal to the injured pride of the dominant um, social classes, which are in the case of uh, of 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 North America are white settlers, um, which is again that we've we've seen this over the last you know I mean throughout the history of American far right movements but especially in the in the contemporary juncture which is that you know the base of of maga and um you know the proud boys are not you know this sort of stereotype of like deindustrialized midwesterners like they're working guess, class yeah white working class no but it's it's like that's yeah there, it's, just, it's factually untrue as well like right like right. there's like there's just, been studies that they tend to be middle class like middle class yes yeah. exactly right it's not and again it's not that like i, I think there's sort of this it, nuance that is maybe lost there which is that well it's because the middle like, class is, like they have a right is, to be angry right because of like the 08 recession like they they had this like hope of climate social mobility that was just totally shattered but where i think like the so-called what people might call the class reductionist miss is they think that like the trump supporters was the white proletariat and because of that they think that just by using proletarian rhetoric and anti intersectional rhetoric that'll somehow appeal to them which i think is totally like you know naive well it, it elides several factors which is one is that uh you know if you read a book like you know as many problems as i have with it uh, a book like settlers by jake jay sakai which is that historically the white working class has actually played this very reactionary role um which again, I, I I think that we need to wrestle with that. But then also, we need to compound that and complicate that with the fact that the working class historically and today is disproportionately and over, actually, if you look at it on the international scale, overwhelmingly not white, um, right? Well, just um, like go, go like try to take an Uber, like the people I, who are driving the Uber who are doing like a lot of the essential jobs. Like are often immigrants, first gen right. or second gen. Right. Labor, the labor market is it both domestically and internationally is deeply racialized. And I think that that is something that is elided by so-called class reductionists. Um, and uh, 
and well, it, and it also in the analysis of of fascism the other thing that i think that we need to pick apart in fascism is that yes the base of fascism it has its basis in middle class kind of ideals and and you know sense of you know injured pride and opportunity there's an esoteric element like there's the esoteric element that appeals to people like what i wanted to get at is that specifically with like white settler fascism is that it is by its very nature a cross-class project it is right like getting white proles and you know lumpen proles to identify with the oppressor um and to partake in the oppression of other working class people um and um right i think we also have this very even if even if you if you don't like settlers or whatever which okay fine um i haven't read it but you know for folks who are maybe a little right like this this book really makes people uncomfortable which i think is a a a, a, not a whole can of worms to unpack all of itself but even if you wanted to just exclude that from your historical analysis. Uh, Lenin has this idea of, and it's I think also shared by Eugene Debs, of the labor aristocracy, which, you know, is also clearly a deeply racialized phenomenon. The labor aristocracy, meaning, you know, the people, the higher paid workers, the professional uh, managerial um, stratum, right? Like these are all, you know, stations in life, so to speak, that are disproportionately occupied by uh, white workers. Well, uh, I, I, I will <laughs> actually push back on that because I think the labor aristocracy is almost like that's sort of been flipped on its head, at least in America. Because if we look at, you know, um, for example, let's say tech workers, dis- people work in big tech disproportionately paid better than people work in a lot of more declining industries. Mm-hmm. Is you you see like a lot of studies being shown about like the majority of Facebook employees and Twitter employees and Google employees voting Democrat, and I think it's like almost it's not so much like I think tr- Trump's um, appeal is more with like the prior maybe layer, labor aristocracy that like is no longer that that is the lost right. middle the lost white middle class, whereas now you kind of almost like Democrats are appealing to this like upper managerial class, so-called managerial class. Um, Yeah. But also I want to also say like all of Trump supporters, like, as we know, some reactionaries will make this argument aren't all white, but that doesn't mean that like fascism has to be white as we can see that like uh, Latin America, plenty of examples of fascism, mostly all backed by the United States, but the Philippines. Yeah. Rodrigo Duterte, who's, a virulent fascist who or Japan and World War II Adolf Hitler. However, you know, like I think fascism, despite the fact that it's not necessarily just like ipso facto white with you know capital W, uh, I think it is nonetheless like very much it's well, I wouldn't even say that that's not where I was gonna go with it, which is that it is deep deeply uh European in character, even if it is not capital w white that's true because if we can look at like latin american fascists it tends to usually be the whiter side of the population being in power and oppressing the indigenous everyone from people like janine agnes to to um yeah absolutely yes yes yeah well um that's another thing i wanted to say is like with fascism right like nazi germany was almost an exception in that it used socialist rhetoric 
more or less of the time, like very surface at that, but yes. Yeah. Well, like most of the time fascism manifests in a kind of religious form that is very overt that it just like wants to maintain. Yeah. Or it just wants to like maintain hierarchies mm-hmm. essentially. Like it's pretty straightforward. We can even trace this back to conservative thinkers. Like it's to me, I, I don't like, I think there is a distinction between liberalism and fascism, but there isn't really a distinction between what we call like reactionary conservatism and fascism because someone like yeah. Edmund Burke meets all the characteristics of a fascist in my view, like, uh, and what he describes is essentially like, you know, a monarchy, but in practice, as we know, like the thing is the nature of capitalism is that it can't really go backwards on an economic level. It always has to keep expanding. So despite all of like the fascist mythology of wanting to return to this past, it never can. And uh, right. it, that's it, the, that's that, that, and that it kind of knows that about itself too. Like that's, well, I don't I know mean, if the people know, but like the, leaders, well, sure. But like yeah. the, the engineers of fascism, so yeah. to speak, they, they know that there's no end game. They know that they're leading a death cult. Well, Evola seemed to be pretty clueless. Like Evola threatened to like do spy to do uh, uh, what was it again to do to conduct spells on Mussolini because he thought Mussolini was like had, was betraying the vision of fascism. And then oh he gosh. when and when he was towards the end of his life, when Evola was asked about what his beliefs were, if he was like a fascist, and he said, "I'm a super fascist," to differentiate himself from Mussolini because he thought Mussolini wasn't a true fascist. Yeah, like, he, hey, this guy is a wimp. <laughs> well it's like the, the thing so i here's Hitler where i didn't go far enough <laughs> here is on a economic or i don't not necessarily economic <laughs> level but on a material level where i would differentiate fascism and liberalism is if you look in like fascist countries uh we well liberal uh countries are still very authoritarian they have an illusion of democracy or i would just say a bourgeois democracy is uh lenin would call it is yes there is a democracy and there is like a quality of property owners above the law right and there is democracy in the capitalist nations remains as it was in the greek polis democracy of the slave owners (laughs) yeah that's exactly right so there is like a distinction to be made like the thing is and that's why marx actually did support like bourgeois freedoms because at the very least like uh, that were advanced under otto van bismarck is that at least like there's like this possibility to win some things for the working class in this framework whereas under fascism, there is no due process. There is not even shadow trials. You can just be executed. Right. Uh, it's and it and you can see the ideology in someone like I would well, say Edmund Burke, like old conservatism, uh, who thought that tolerance, that uh, the liberal idea of tolerance, was absurd because, like, if we're trying to defend private property, why would we even tolerate anything else? Right. And uh, also, well, like, well, you see Carl Schmitt, like a Nazi theorist, right. basically, right? Who not the guy. <laughs> Yeah, like Carl Schmitt basically thought that he hated liberalism, obviously not for the same reason the Marxists hated liberalism, but he hated the idea that there's even a chance that something progressive that could infringe on private property could right. ever happen, right? So, so I, I think, think there is something to like separate. Like I don't fascism, think, I wouldn't I think... call Roosevelt a fascist, right? Like I, Rose, I think all of libertarian liberalism is authoritarian. Like we need to, of course, demystify the nonsense liberals will perpetuate but at the same time i just i think there is a line to be made between fascism and liberalism i think in the in the sense that we've been talking about it that fascism 
on the ideological plane is uh, liberalism without the pretensions to liberty. <laughs> if that that's makes a, sense. That I would like, I would agree especially with that. like in the way that that Lacerdo talks about it too, and not just in uh, liberalism, but his other book um, War and Revolution, which is another really fantastic read that I hope everybody um, you know picks up. But like the other thing is that like you mentioned like the fascist like you know you can just be executed. Well, I mean look at what's going on in the United States like. For, its, for, for one thing, for its whole history, but like right now, like the whole uh, uprising this last year or so has been, you know, precipitated because the police literally just executed a black man for a petty crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, an alleged petty crime. Well, yeah. That. And also there's also like um, the, the whole tolerance thing of liberals is, is, is nonsense because obviously Eugene Debs, right? perfect example of someone who is uh, locked up under the Espionage Act uh, right. under by Woodrow Wilson because, uh, and you see this not just in America, but like R.B. Bennett in Canada and the Red Scare, or even Japan suppressing its Communist Party to the point where nowadays, despite being a very big party, the Japanese Communist Party is basically like a more or less a reformist party because they're afraid of, if they, if they express revolutionary desires, that they'll be you know, purged. Yeah. So that, that that tells you about liberalism, but the thing is, is like it it, it could be worse, right? Is that's why I'll say is like liberalism. I will always choose like living under liberalism as opposed to fascism, just because there is loopholes. There is that kind of um, bourgeois freedoms. They need show trials. Right. They need to like find ways to legally prosecute you. Whereas the, the, under the fascism, they can just the send death squads. De- like right, the pretensions of liberal democracy are still more ideal than. <laughs> Because because of the need to at least maintain a face, a facade of 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 fairness and democracy does actually make a qualitative difference. However, um, I just wanted to because we're on the subject. I wanted to kind of read this quote from uh, Settlers Revisited um, that kind of encapsulates the problem that we're trying to unpack in this conversation, which is like, how do you distinguish like? liberalism, liberal democracy, particularly in settler societies from so-called fascism, which I think, you know, other thinkers uh, like the Black Panther, George Jackson tries to to get at in Mm. his book, Blood in My Eye. Um, But just real quick, this quote here. Um, In many settler societies, historically, the white population not only supported the police, but in part, they were the police. Unlike in old Europe, where where Uh, wherein the general masses of the people were kept disarmed and landless. In settler colonies, often the entire Euro-male culture revolved around the common and cheap access to land and firearms and the bodies of the oppressed. Posses or militias or so-called committees of correspondence or lynch mobs of armed men enforced the local settler dictatorship over Indians, Latinos, Africans, Asians, North Africans, women, and so on. And white men of all classes joined in to affirm their membership of the most important, quote, class of all, emphasis mine here, settlerism filled the space that fascism normally occupies. Later on, he says, neither the ruling class nor the white masses had any real need for fascism. What for? There was no class deadlock paralyzing society. There was already a long-standing, thinly disguised settler dis- settler dictatorship over the colonial proletariat in North America. And he says, again, in the U.S., settlerism made fascism unnecessary. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's hmm. 
that quote you just read pretty much really echoes what um, Lozardo was saying with a master race democracy and that how this was essentially like the project of liberalism the whole time. But like in general, I think while I would, I would make a distinction between liberalism and fascism, I don't think it's really accurate to really not make a distinction. But um, I will say that there, it's, we can both agree that there's definitely like a slippery slope. And for, there's a reason why people often talk, speak of the libertarianism to fascism pipeline. I think it's yeah, more like... absolutely. Because libertarianism more or less is just like what liberalism used to be, I would say. Yeah, um, with a really uh, oddly uh, racialized um, aspect the the don't tread on me flags and the kind of the, that imagery of of uh, of that epoch. Mm-hmm. Well, I of. mean, that, I think it's super accurate just because, like, you know, libertarians, despite being, you know, not supposedly not caring about um, oppressing people on racial or gender lines, uh, they really do. They just don't care enough, like the fascists do. And uh, classical liberals, of course, you know, we're we're fucking very racist. I mean, this occupies my mind in thinking about fascism and liberal historiography and how, right, we t- like liberalism as we talk about it um, and as, as Lacerdo kind of unpacks is um, frequently in, in the way that we understand it today is stories that liberalism tells about itself, about its, its own history and um, and in terms again in terms of its ideals rather than its purpose and practice and i think that you know particularly in uh, unpacking its sort of uh racialized origins uh i think makes talking about where fascism fits in the history of capitalism and 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 you know colonialism um I'm I'm not saying that it makes it impossible. I think it makes it more difficult to talk about because liberals, I think, really like to to think of liberalism and fascism as totally con- in total contradistinction. Uh, that li- that liberalism or that communism is is more and has more in common with fascism. or yeah that the far left and the far right are just two sides of the same coin, um, right? It's all yeah. it's all bad. It's all authoritarianism. Um, well, that's something to I wanted to touch on a little bit. Is uh, it's probably like the last thing, like because we're gonna have to wrap it up soon. But sure. um, the, I think there's oh sorry, there's there's um the thing about property, right? Like some people often ask. This is a debate on the left a lot. Is um is is liberalism compatible with Marxism, or just vaguely? Sometimes people will say is liberalism compatible with socialism slash communism. And the the I could see how you can make a case, but I would say you ultimately can't. Like I'll get this is my take. Uh, I want to hear yours after. Is that in my opinion the Salvador Allende experiment is an example of why liberalism and socialism aren't compatible? Is because the thing is, is Allende tried to essentially work within a lab- liberal framework to implement socialism, and as a result, he like instead of just seizing the you know the the industries from the rich oligarchs who own them. He like bought them, you know, legally using like the property rights instead of just seizing them like how Cuba did. And first of all, that actually like heavily put Chile in a big debt and they ended up like overthrowing him anyway and basically killing all the communists. So it doesn't really matter if you respect the law, like the, the property owning class will 
change the law or resort to full fascism just to get their way. So that what I'm, what I mean is I don't think they're compatible. And the reason why I thought of this is just because I remember when I was having a conversation with a person who was like, uh, worked for the NDP, which is like in Canada, the social democratic party. And I said, we need to analyze, we need to nationalize oil in Canada because our, and all of our natural resources, because that's the basis of our economy. And it's all like, it's all taken by private corporations. And they said it wouldn't be worth the task because we have to buy the oil reserves from the companies that occupy them. And I was like, no, we don't like who no one owns the oil. Right. And I think that's right. There is what differentiates liberals from socialist, from uh, Marxists and anarchists is we don't really believe in this intrinsic idea of private property. Like, I'm sorry, national resources are not private property or, or land that's there before anyone, you know, or, yeah. Or respect it. or this kind of abstract, like just respect for the rules. Like liberals, liberals really uh, are all about doing things by the letter of the law. Um, you know, I even I heard some liberal commentator calling Joe Biden the new law and order president because, like, he's against the in, the so-called insurrectionists of of you know January sixth. Um, yeah, and that's why the, that but, was what was so terrifying about that incident is that people who are mad about it on the media they weren't mad because of what the insurrection was about, like the, the fascist element. They were like mad about the fact that they were just disobeying the laws, which right. is a completely yeah, never, different. Never mind that this is like a huge agglomeration of a bunch of people who, given the chance, would seize state power and probably, you know, escalate its, uh, you know, fascistic dimensions to levels that are far beyond its current scope. Um, you know, if they ha- actually had the wherewithal to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the thing with um, property rights is um, like, it's not, it's not just problematic in practice, but it's even wrong in theory. And uh, we can trace it back to John Locke's justification for property and his criticism in uh, of indigenous people in, I think it's a letter concerning, concerning tolerance, where he says, uh, well, first in the two treaties of government, he famously says that a person who puts in labor to make use of a land should own it and they have a right to own it. And that's what gives private property is like you making use of that property um, of that land. And he says like the reason why indigenous people, you need to steal their shit is because they don't make use of their right. land. Just the irony, right. Colonialism. Of, basically. But the irony, the even bigger irony with John Locke is that it's not the people who do the work who own the land. It's like you basically just rich people buy the land and, and then buy slaves. Wait, yeah. And get slaves to do all the work or like wage slave slavery and, right. and capitalism. Slaves it, of whatever variety, chattel yeah. or wage slaves. Basically. Yeah. So it's like, it's wrong in theory. So it's what I think is then we're left with this question what is, is there any real reason why we still need liberalism? And is there any way, like, do we need to be having this conversation as to why they're compatible? I think we should, I think the whole reason it's why Mar- Mar- the wrong question. it's like Marxism was invented as like a superior left-wing ideology. Right. And same with anarchism is like, it's just, it's just better at actually realizing, you know, the emancipata- emancipation from right. many. And I think really the the frame of that conversation, uh, you know, is liberalism compatible or whatever, or can Marxism fully realize the the failed ideals of liberalism or whatever? I think it fundamentally, uh, rhetorically speaking, 
gives way gives up way too much ground to uh, liberalism and capitalism, um, because you know fundamentally what I what I think is kind of maybe not explicitly on the table there, but what I think is kind of being softly implied is is an argument for reformism uh, that you know social democ social democratic um, you know uh, policy. Uh, perhaps cloaked in Marxism can basically be reintroduced. I, I think that's maybe that's my conspiracy theory brain thinking there on that kind of more abstract level of like, what is this argument doing in terms of shifting the conversation? Yeah. It's like um, li liberal socialism. An approach would be, Oh, let's give Amazon the option to offer ownership to their workers if they go bankrupt rather than just being like, no, Amazon, well, first of all, too, too big to be owned by the workers, I think. Like, Amazon needs to be nationalized. But um, like, yeah, like nationalize Amazon and like, give it a, you know, $20 an hour minimum wage or something. Exactly. Yeah. Or, uh, in, or in the case of like, you know, small business owners, how many, how many like small business owners are going to like voluntarily give their business to the workers? Like you think when right. like, or that when we can people... just kind of work our work, we can work or co-op our way into um, yeah, socialism, exactly. which is, or that, is, or that again, we can even get worker co-ops. Like that's the thing is right. Like, even, even this wishful like, thinking to begin with. Exactly. And it's which just thing not is, to say, which I think importantly is not to say that we should not have worker co-ops. Like I don't yeah, that's think great. That they're, they're not a bad thing. Like, let me be clear about that. I just, you know, no, we want worker co-ops, but like, I don't think you can even achieve that. Right. On like a liberal framework. It's, right. And like the other thing is that thinking politically in terms of, you know, what worker co-ops or unions for that matter do. Uh, and this takes us back to Lenin and his polemics against the economists, which is that, um, you know, you can't just kind of implant yourself within sort of class struggle, like in these very kind of one-dimensional bread and butter ways and expect, you know, political consciousness to kind of just magically bloom out of that. Like political organization needs to be um, a co-constitutive factor there. Like, um, and, also, and, and that's the specifically of what, like, there's a lot of confusion about, like, what Lenin means by, like, political consciousness coming from without. He's just, all he's saying there, in, I mean, this is my read of Lenin, is that, is that, you know, you, like, trade union, you know, what he calls trade union consciousness, like, you can't just expect, um, you know, organizations under capitalism, within the capitalist framework, even if they are struggling for, you know, workers' rights, they're struggling to renegotiate the terms of their own exploitation. And so, you know, the, re the job of, of revolutionary political organization is to give political context to those, um, to those struggles and not from like the position of like, you know, this is kind of the Leninist caricature of like a self-selected elite so-called vanguard party, but of some, of, of a movement that is of and with that. Well, the early stages of the Ruf Russian Revolution were was in many ways more liberal than what liberals could ever dream of or idealize. Right, but, in this uh, very kind of like, organic way too. Yeah, but uh, like as that aside, that's like a whole different conversation almost. Yeah. But it's funny that people often refer to Lenin and juxtapose him with 
Rosa Luxemburg as if Lenin was like anti-democracy and Rosa no. Luxemburg was like the democracy one. Whereas no, like it, people like this, where people like misunderstand deep misreading exactly. of, of, of Luxemburg's own politics as well. Well, because it's because she I was think it, very much a, a democratic centralist in that kind of pejorative sense that Leninists are besmirched uh, for. Well, it's, it's people have like a really, I think, inherently liberal idea of what democracy is, because the thing is, is like, Democratic socialism in the way Rosa Luxemburg articulates it is not like AOC democratic socialism, obviously, because like the way democratic socialists today, like, you know, Corbyn, AOC, Bernie, whatever, they'll advocate like, it's like democratically making every transition. So it's like, oh, you need the consent of like the rich people to take away their wealth. Well, that's not going to fucking happen. No. Yeah. Luxemburg remains uh, at her core. She was a revolutionary. Exactly. And and that's where she whole, disagreed with like Bernstein, right? Right. And her whole case in reform and revolution is like, yeah, we can kind of do these like intermediary, you know, like not, but they're, you know, like parliamentary sort of uh, moves, but those are not ipso facto what's going to get us to socialism. They are ways that we can, you know, give ourselves a platform and, and raise political consciousness and, uh, but like ultimately, you know, Bern, Bernstein, you can't just reform your way. Vote your vote to the yeah, you way can't in. Vote your way into socialism. Let's also be clear that anarchists too, like anarchists are often, some anarchists themselves will believe this, but usually not the ones who actually read the theory and look at the history of anarchism. But anarchists also aren't like naively thinking that you can just ask the consent of all like the rich no, property owners. Not. for. I, I think this is where like a lot of folks get kind of lost on this notion of like what authority or so-called like the state is. And it's like, we don't want to think about it, right? Because it's not pretty. Like no one wants no. authoritarianism, but well, it's the, the, the mean, reality is, is like, think about it this way. Like the, the upper rich classes are going to fund private militias to like kill and still a fascist dictator to like destroy, castrate people, like torture people, right. all kind of horrible things. So it's like, sometimes, you know, we got to like reconcile with that a little bit. In that, um, what do we mean by democracy? We mean democracy for the people who do the work. And that's, of course, the majority of the population. Right. I, I just want to, one more thing that I wanted to, to hammer on since you brought up the Nazis again, which is that, uh, and Ian Danskin of Innuendo Studios talks about this in his videos about fascism, which is that we have this kind of, in this cultural imaginary, fascists, Nazis are cartoon villains. They're unequivocally, you know, kind of primordial evil. And that really damages our ability to talk about because it depoliticizes what fascism, what Nazism is and was. Yeah. And it makes it seem like there is no context materially from that. That's why it's often like portrayed as if Hitler just came out of nowhere. You know, he right. And he used, his, he used his magic charisma and he hypnotized the masses and blah 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 it's such and, bullshit it's like and and people will leave out that america supported franco even after world war ii and or that, uh, installed you know, major, so many dictators everywhere and that you know somewhere. major american industrialists supported hitler right up until the u.s decided it was going to go to war and we support monarchies now like uh saudi arabia saudi arabia and you know fascist um dictators like duterte and Agnes, and yeah absolutely 
No, I think we've hit on all the points so far. We we uh, destroyed liberalism with facts and logic. Liberalism oh, is gone. Now now we get a socialist utopia. I, I'll pl- I'll play that at, I'll play that at the end. But yeah, on a serious note, if you guys enjoyed this podcast, um, please leave a rating and also maybe share it with your friends. And uh, yeah, so if you guys enjoyed, definitely go check out our channel, uh, follow our on Twitter. And uh, yeah, it's been nice having you on. Right on. Yeah, thank you very much. 